0: Thanks for listening to the Journey Christian Church podcast. We're on a mission to make disciples who love God, love people, and serve the world. Our prayer is that this message encourages you today. And remember, Journey is a place where everybody's welcome, nobody's perfect, and through Jesus, anything is possible. In the spring of 1980, two significant things happened. Seems like a long time ago, doesn't it? 1980. The first is an educational milestone. I graduated from Bracken County High School in Kentucky. There you go. That's the most important event that happened in the spring of 1980 from my perspective. Now, just take a look at that. That's the before. This is the after. (laughs) However, in late May of 1980... A geological event occurred 52 miles northeast of Portland, 98 miles south of Seattle. A stratovolcanic a volcano known as Mount St. Helens erupted, causing the deadliest and costliest volcanic event in U.S. history. Fifty-seven people were killed. 200 homes destroyed, 47 bridges, 15 miles of railways, and 185 miles of highways were obliterated. A massive debris avalanche triggered by a 5.1 earthquake caused a lateral eruption that reduced the elevation of the mountain summit from 9,677 feet to 8,363 feet, leaving a one-mile-wide horseshoe-shaped crater. If you've ever seen a picture of Mount St. Helens before the eruption, you could not fathom this would happen. Hey, take a look. That's before Mount St. Helens erupted. Nothing seems more permanent and fixed and immovable than a mountain. But underneath that majestic and beautiful exterior, inside was brewing a deadly lava that would literally blow the top off this mountain. After the eruption, this is what Mount St. Helens looks like now. Last week, we started a series of messages based on the biblical story of the life of Joseph. The series is called Turning Trauma into Triumph. And last week... We did a 30,000-foot flyover of Joseph's ancestry, and we noted some of the generational trauma that was part of his family's legacy. Today, we're going to do a deeper dive into the immediate family into which Joseph was born. And like Mount St. Helens prior to the eruption, looking from the outside, Joseph's family seemed to have it all. His father Jacob had 12 sons, a beautiful daughter, numerous flocks of animals, and abundant resources to do anything they desired. Even though they were a nomadic family, they were feared by the local authorities to the point that they could move about freely anywhere they wanted, seemingly, without limits. They had it all, or so it seemed. But deep inside... This family, something deadly was brewing that would blow this family apart, never to be the same again. Heard about a census taker that knocked on the door of a mountain cabin in West Virginia, and a scrawny teenage girl answered the door. He said, Is your father home? She said, No peeing here. He's been in jail for two years. Census taker said, Well, your mother home? Nope, she ain't here. She ran off with the moonshiner. Well, he said, do you have an old, older siblings? Yep, a sister, but she ain't here. She's in a hospital for crazy people. Well, he said, do you have any other siblings I can talk with? Yeah, an older brother, but he ain't here either. He's at Harvard. The census taker said, Harvard? What's he studying at Harvard? She said, he ain't studying nothing. They're studying him. <laughs> I want us to study the home life of Joseph today to better understand the all-in-the-family trauma that God allowed him to ultimately triumph over. To get a sense of the family dynamics Joseph was raised in, take a look at Genesis chapter 37. This is from verse 2. This is the account of Jacob. That's Joseph's father. This is the account of Jacob. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his Father's wives, and right out of the gate, we can see that Joseph did not grow up in what is often referred to as the traditional family structure. His father's wives is a dead giveaway, is it not? Turns out Jacob was married to two sisters, Leah and Rachel. We brought this up last week. Just take a look at this. You need to go back to watch last week's message if you want to find out a little bit more. But we have Abraham, that's Joseph's great great grandfather, and his uh, grandfather Isaac, and this is Jacob. Jacob is Mary. We're going to keep chat. Just, just we'll bring this back up again. But keep count of the women in this home. Unless you're familiar with what I'm uh, with Jacob's story, you're going to think what I'm about to tell you, I'm making up. But it is exactly what happened and recorded in the biblical record. Joseph's father Jacob had a falling out, and that's putting it mildly. With his twin brother Esau, and he fled for his life to his mother's side of the family and home region, a place called Padan Aram. And you can see he went from here to there. That's a long way to go in ancient times. Not long after arriving, Jacob meets his uncle Laban, his mother's brother. After Jacob was there for a month, Laban said, Now I'm a fair man. I don't want you to work for me for nothing. What can I pay you? Laban had two daughters, Leah, the oldest. Rachel, the youngest, I like the way the Living Bible describes these two girls' appearance. It says, Rachel was shapely and in every way a beauty, but Leah had lovely eyes. (laughs) Now, guys, if somebody's setting you up on a blind date and they were saying to you, would you rather go out with a girl who is shapely and in every way a beauty or go out with a girl who has lovely eyes? Who are you picking? I think I know. The New International Version says this, Leah had weak eyes. But Rachel was lovely in form and beauty. Well, Jacob was immediately attracted to the younger sister Rachel, and he said to Laban, I'll tell you what, I'll work for you for seven years if you let me marry your youngest daughter, Rachel. She must have been really good looking, right? Laban realized this is a pretty good deal for both of them, and he agreed, Genesis 29:20. So Jacob served seven years to get Rachel, but they seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. Oh, (laughs) Jacob is one lovesick puppy, isn't he? When the seven years were up, there was an elaborate wedding feast planned. Now to comprehend what happened next, you need to understand two things. Number one. It was the custom of that day for the older daughter to be married first. No self-respecting father would permit the younger daughter to be married ahead of the older. Secondly, the weddings took place at night when the bride could not be seen very well. They didn't have electric lights. They just had torches or oil lamps. And the bride wore a heavy veil over her face during their entire ceremony. And I'm sure a lot of wine was consumed. So Laban arranged for Jacob to marry not younger and more beautiful Rachel, whom he deeply loved and had contracted for, but older and weak-eyed Leah, Genesis 29, 22. So Laban brought together all the people of the place, gave a feast. But when evening came, he took his daughter Leah and gave her to Jacob, and Jacob lay with her. When morning came, there came, there was Leah. Are you, can you imagine what's going on in Jacob's mind the next morning when he awakened and the sun streaming through the tent and he looked over and he saw not Rachel but Leah? He must have thought, you know, my mother said that women did not look as good in the morning. <laughs> but this is ridiculous. And then it hit him. This wasn't Rachel. This was Leah. And he came bolting out of the tent charging into Laban's house and he furiously demanded an explanation. So Jacob said to Laban, What is this you've done to me? I served you for Rachel, didn't I? Why have you deceived me? Laban replied, Chill out, Jacob. Now that's not in the Bible, but that's close to what he said. It is not our custom here to give the younger daughter in marriage before the older one. Finish this daughter's bridal week, then we will give you the younger one also in return. <laughs> oh. For another seven years of work. And Jacob did so. He agreed to that. He finished the week with Leah and then Laban gave him his daughter, Rachel, to be his wife. And that's how the home that shaped Joseph's life began with two wives who were sisters and who were rivals. That is a bad, bad formula for a family. Leah was jealous of Rachel because she was prettier and she was loved. And Rachel became jealous of Leah because Leah soon gave Jacob four sons while Rachel was infertile. So to compensate, Rachel said to Jacob, since I've not been able to give you a child, I want you to sleep with my servant girl, Bilhah. She'll be a surrogate mother for me and we'll adopt her children as our own. Jacob's already sleeping with two women. Now a third gets thrown into the mix. By one of his wives. We don't read Jacob put up any protest to this plan. And this was apparently not a one time only kind of deal because Bilhah had not just one, but two sons with Jacob. Look at the genogram once again. So we got Leah over here, and here, here's, here, here's a Bildah right here and her two sons. But wait a minute, just keep looking at that. We're not done. Even though Leah has given Jacob four sons, she wants more, but she's unable to bear more children. So not to be outdone, Leah persuaded Jacob to impregnate her servant girl, Zilpah, who bore Jacob two more sons. Now Jacob had children by four different women and ends up with ten sons because later Leah had two more and one daughter. But there was no child born to his favorite wife, His beloved Rachel. And finally, Rachel was able to conceive and she gave birth to a son and she named him Joseph. Can you imagine the turmoil that existed in this home as Joseph was growing up? He had a granddad, Laban, who was a conniver and greedy. He had a mother who was in a fertility competition with her older sister who were both married to the same man. Throw in two more baby mamas who are also vying for attention for their children. And you got the bachelor and the Jerry Springer show and Dr. Phil all wrapped up in one deliciously dysfunctional package. This family contained all the ingredients for a psychological nightmare. We've all seen that old sign, when mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. Well, there were four unhappy mamas in Joseph's home. Some would call this a blended family. It wasn't blended. It was a bizarre family. What a chaotic home environment this must have been to grow up in. And to make matters even more difficult for Joseph, while he was still a little boy, his father decided to move. Jacob had a falling out with his father-in-law Laban. So he packed up everything and he moved away. There were threats and heated exchanges between the two parties. Joseph was exposed to all that fear and insecurity as a child. But then came the worst blow of all to young Joseph. His mother died giving birth to his little brother Benjamin. And suddenly Joseph is left without a mother in a strange country. Jacob partly out of coping with his grief over losing his beloved Rachel, and partly out of becoming a dad at an older age, treasured Joseph. Joseph was the favorite child, the firstborn from Jacob's first love, and everybody knew it. When the other boys would walk in the room, Jacob would ask them about the flocks or whether their chores were done. When Joseph walked into the room, old Jacob's eyes would light up, his face would beam. Joseph was the one that dad would brag about. Jacob knew how Joseph was doing in school and who his teachers were and what his friends' names were. Jacob was a little fuzzy about the details of the other boys' lives. You see, in a hundred ways, in ways that most parents are not aware of, but children can smell a mile away, Jacob's favoritism for Joseph just leaked out of him. And then one day, Jacob's favoritism took a concrete form when he gave Joseph a special robe. The Hebrew word to describe this robe is somewhat unclear. It may simply mean a tunic with long sleeves. Some translations call it a richly ornamented robe. A lot of people know the old King James Version says he was given a coat of many colors The point is not the fashion style, but the financial statement. Jacob bought it at Nordstrom. It was hand-tailored. The rest of the boys got their robes on clearance at Dollar General. (laughs) This is the kind of coat worn by nobility. This was not the kind of coat you wore to do your chores in. Jacob was saying to both Joseph and his brothers, you boys go out and work, but Joseph stays here with me. It was a garment of distinction. And it enraged Joseph's brothers every time they saw it. You know, sometimes it's hard for a parent not to show favoritism. A child's temperament or appearance may be more winsome than the other. Or sometimes a child is more dependent on you because of a physical or emotional weakness, and you inadvertently pay special attention to them at the expense of the stronger child. Irma Bombeck once said, every mother has a favorite child. It's the one who needs you at the moment for whatever The reason. But as parents, we recognize we can't treat children alike, but we can love them equally. But Jacob did not love his children equally, and everybody in the household knew it. Joseph was his favorite, and he made no effort to conceal it whatsoever. Joseph got the best of clothes, the easiest of jobs, the highest of compliments. That wasn't good for the other brothers. And I want to tell you who else it wasn't good for it wasn't good for Joseph. More on that in a moment. Jacob, of all people, should have known better and should have seen this was an unwise move. He had himself been born into a family split over who loved what child more than the other one. And why Isaac, his father, loved Esau, his twin brother, because Esau was... His father's type of outdoor man. Rebecca, his mother, favored Jacob over Esau. That rivalry led led to endless problems. And yet, as so often happens, Jacob repeated the destructive patterns of his childhood. May I say a word to step parents and to grandparents? You already know. May I remind you to try to distribute love equally that is difficult sometimes because of the proximity of the child or the talents of the child or the temperament of the child but it goes a long way toward the health of the family if each child knows they're equally loved a school teacher told of two little second-grade girls who came to her at the beginning of the school year and one of them said teacher my sister and I are in the same class and we're the same age but we're not twins One of us is adopted, but we can't remember which one. That's the kind of equal expression of love that builds a godly home, but that wasn't present in Joseph's home. However, Joseph himself was not faultless. John Lennox writes, it would rather strain our credulity to think that basking in the favoritism of his father had no negative effect on Joseph in terms of overconfidence and self-righteousness tinged with arrogance. One child psychologist says, even the favored child suffers in the long run. As soon as children become aware of the favoritism, sibling rivalry is intensified to an almost intolerable level. That's what we see happening in Joseph's home. Joseph was a very good young man. Don't get me wrong. But I think the text hints of an arrogant spirit at worst or a naive spirit at best in his younger years. For some reason, Joseph either didn't sense his brother's antagonism or he didn't care about it. He did not perceive the depth of their hostility towards him, and he did three things that intensified their hatred for him. First, he brought a bad report about them. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah, the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives, and he brought their father a bad report about them. One Old Testament scholar named Leon Cass said that Genesis 37:2 here should read like this. Joseph, being 17 years of old, was shepherding his brothers among the flocks. Cass describes Joseph as at best a spy reporting on request to his father about the deeds of the brothers he was shepherding and possibly exaggerating his report to ingratiate himself with his father. That's why the word bad report is there. It is a report that intentionally paints others in a negative light. Joseph came back and reported to Dad, Dad, you ought to see what they're doing out there. Not good, it's a problem. Then when Jacob confronted the sons, they were furious with Joseph for telling on them. Now, maybe Joseph did the right thing in telling on them. Maybe they were stealing from their dad, or maybe they were ruining their dad's reputation by acting immorally or illegally. From what we know of Joseph's brothers, and by the way, come back next week for that one, and what they are capable of, he probably had good reasons to tell his dad. But right or wrong, it enraged the brothers and the lava of their resentment. He's building growing hotter within second thing Joseph did to incur his brother's wrath he he wore that special coat a lot it's one thing for a father to give that kind of coat to his son it's another thing for the son to wear it every stinking place he goes listen if you got a tuxedo you don't wear it out to work in the garage Joseph wore his coat out tending sheep It may have been a good idea for Joseph to put that coat in the closet and wear it discreetly like when the brothers who have no costly coats from their dad aren't around. But indications are Joseph wore it at every opportunity. That's just unwise. Verse 4 indicates every time the brothers saw the coat they were reminded of their father's favoritism for Joseph to the point that they hated him so much they could not even speak a kind word to him. By the way, can I just say, if God blesses you in a particular area, don't flaunt it. Don't try to inflame the feelings of envy on the part of other people. If you're blessed intellectually, don't be tossing around big words and delight in it when people have to ask you what they mean. If you're blessed financially, don't exploit that by always wearing your expensive brands and accessories and try to make people around you feel inferior. Jesus once said this. He said, beware of the Pharisees. They love to wear special garments to call attention to themselves. They scramble for the chief seats in the synagogue, and they want you to call them by their title. Jesus said, don't be like that. Thirdly, Joseph shared his dreams of superiority. Verse 5, Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. Now, it doesn't take a psychic to interpret that dream. Verse 8, his brothers said to him, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream. And what he said, is irritating enough for Joseph to parade in front of them with that special coat. It was maddening to listen to his dreams of power and authority over them. And the lava of hatred intensifies. Joseph should have caught on. But then he had a second dream. (laughs) And he boasted about it too. He said, listen to my latest dream. I'm sure they'll say, we're just hanging on hooks over here waiting for you to tell us what that is. The sun, moon, 11 stars bowed down before me. Now, common sense would say, Joseph, just shut up. Just shut up. Don't antagonize your brothers further. But again, Joseph was either very naive and couldn't imagine anybody would disapprove of him, or he takes delight in deliberately antagonizing his brothers. Verse 11 says, when he told his father as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him And he said, what's this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. Another contributing factor to this mess that we'll talk more about next week. I want to say a word to parents who have a tendency to be overindulgent with your children. A spoiled child is almost always not only an arrogant child, but a naive child. They're naive about people's reaction to them. When they go off to school, they assume everybody loves me. Everybody wants to serve me. Everybody thinks I'm the cutest. And they'll boast about themselves or demand to be the center of attention with absolutely no idea how they're coming across to other people are how egotistical they appear. And as they go on in school, the other children eventually begin to resent them because of their prima donna spirit. And the parents usually explain it away by saying, oh, they're just jealous. The children of overindulgent parents are naive about the harsh realities of life. When they go off to college and parents aren't there to give them everything and protect them, they overspend. Or they know little about self-denial. When difficulty comes, they're devastated or they become very bitter. And let me tell you something. Overindulged kids are really naive about the experience of marriage. I cannot tell you how many times I've had Ken and Barbie marriages that did not work out. I mean, here's a girl from a pampered home, has all kinds of poise, physical attractiveness, intelligence, sweetness, but she's spoiled and selfish. She marries a guy, he's got plenty of money, he's set up in his father's business, he's talented, articulate, and handsome, but very immature and narcissistic. Everyone rejoices at They say, this is such an ideal marriage. These two are perfect for each other. But it's not long before there's serious problems. She cannot believe he's so self-absorbed and doesn't make her the center of his world. And he's shocked that she doesn't constantly boast his ego. And she actually criticizes him and de- disapproves of how he acts sometimes. There's serious trouble. A lot of the problem is neither of them ever had anything denied to them in their youth. Spoiled children are naive about their relationship with God, too. If their idea of a father is somebody who always gives you what you want and makes sure that all of your life is smooth and easy, they can't imagine serving a God who says something like, whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. Children of overindulgent parents have a very difficult time with bitterness toward God when life deals them a difficult blow. Parents, listen to me. One of the best things that parents can do for their children is to teach them unselfishness and sometimes deny what they really want but don't really need. I recently read something that was fascinating to me. The author said, it's one thing to tell our children I can't when they ask for things that the parents legitimately can't afford. But it's another thing. And a much harder thing to say, I won't, when it is within the parents' means to give the child what they want. Listen to me. Wise parents say no to some of their children's immature requests because our goal is to train them to be faithful to God in the real world, not just under the protection of an ideal environment. Two lessons of application and we'll wrap up. Number one, every family has its share of sorrows and troubles, but some families have secrets that are toxic, and they're hard to overcome. The 2009 housing crisis brought an interesting phrase into the headlines. Maybe you remember this, toxic assets. You know what that is? Toxic assets were one of the factors that contributed to the trouble that banks found themselves in at that time. Assets or loans. Somebody owes a bank money. Normally, banks want people to owe them money, pay them interest on the principal. That's how banks work. That's how they make their money. But with the economy in the condition it was just 11 years ago... Especially with the mortgage foreclosure crisis, many of the loans had actually become liabilities because the houses that secured the loans had decreased in value below the amount of the loan. When assets become harmful to your bottom line, they're no longer really assets, they're liabilities. In fact, they're toxic assets. God created families to provide unconditional love protection. Healthy self-esteem, appropriate discipline, opportunities of growth and self-discovery. But when family environments become places of withheld love, of insecurity, of harmful habits, of abusive behavior, of shame, blame, and secrecy, they become a form of a toxic Asset, And I know right now in Lake County and here in Apopka and online, I'm talking to people today who were raised in divisive families, abusive families, unbelieving families, and those early impressions have left scars of instability, self-hatred, and doubt that are not easy to overcome. And I just want to say this. If you are a parent that is contributing to a toxic family environment... Would you swallow your pride and put your children ahead of yourself? Maybe you need to seek out counseling for yourself and your family, but for their sake, For God's sake, for your own sake, get some help, make things right, provide the kind of love and security they desperately need because, listen, every child brings some family baggage with him or her into adulthood, but don't make the load heavier because you wouldn't seek help. Number two, let's end with this. All families can find help and hope in Jesus regardless of how messed up they are. Can I hear an amen? Amen. Amen. All families can find help and hope in Jesus no matter how messed up they are. While we often underestimate the deep unconscious imprint our families of origin leave on us, we can't overstate how much the gospel of Jesus can change our lives and our families. The great news of the gospel of Jesus is that your biological family of origin does not determine your future. God does. What has gone before you is not what you have to become. Your legacy and your destiny is not determined by your birth family or your adopted family, but by your grace family, because God's grace is always greater than any disgrace that you're dealing with. The grace of God meets us where we are, as we are, and makes it possible for us to be more than we are. The most significant language in the New Testament for becoming a Christian is the phrase, born again. When we put our faith in Jesus Christ, we're spiritually reborn by the Holy Spirit into the family of Jesus. We're transferred out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. God now becomes our father regardless of what our earthly father has been or has not been in our life. Our sins are canceled. We're given a new name, Christian, a new inheritance of freedom, hope, and glory. We have new brothers and sisters, other Christians, Friends, discipleship at its core is putting off the sinful patterns and ingrained habits of our birth families and being transformed to live as members of Jesus' new birth family. Yeah, that's good stuff. Thank you, Lord. But listen, think about how that comes about. The angel Gabriel told Mary, who would later give birth to Jesus, The Lord God will give to him, Jesus, the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob, Joseph's father, forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. Did you hear that? Jesus was a descendant of Jacob, yet was to rule over Jacob. It's kind of like that great Christmas song, Mary, did you know? The child you delivered, Mary, will one day deliver you Joseph's brothers did not believe that he would rule over them one day. They had no idea that the fulfillment of the dream that fired their hatred would be central to their salvation. And the irony is they would never understand it until they willingly did what they swore they would never do, bow down to Joseph. Likewise, Jesus' claim to be Lord, to be Son of God provoked such hostility that eventually the leaders of his own nation... Jesus' own people crucified him, screaming their hatred of him by saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. But precisely because of that cross that he was put on, millions have bowed the knee. And out of those millions, God has formed his church. And so, we read these words of Paul. In your relationships with one another, have now, to take a to take a moment before you before you go too much deeper because this is a deep theological passage. Theologians have interpreted this and had so much uh, just diversity of just being able to pull out the depth of the relationship of what Jesus gave up to come here. But it starts with this: in your relationships with one another. This is what we're supposed to learn of how to relate to one another. Have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made... Surrendering to the Lordship of Jesus is what heals our broken lives. It's what heals our broken families. And it's what heals our broken world. I want you bow your heads. Lake County, Apopka, online, bow your heads. Lord, we believe you're a God with great purposes, even when they are hidden from us. You've placed us into a particular family, in a particular place, at a particular time in history. Lord, we don't want to be ungrateful or betray what has been given to us through our families of origin. And yet, at the same time, help us to know what we need to let go of from our past and what we need to hang on to. Grant us courage, grant us wisdom to learn from the past and not be crippled by it. And may we, like Joseph and even more so, like Jesus, be a blessing to our earthly family, our spiritual family, and to the world at large. In Jesus' name, amen. If you like this podcast, we post a new message every week. So make sure to click that follow button and share it with your friends. Remember, Journey is a place where everybody's welcome, nobody's perfect, and through Jesus, anything is possible.